listening to Miscarriage Stories with Arden Cartrett. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate you like having the conversation on this topic because it's one that comes up so often whenever I talk to people and I don't have personal experience. I only have, you know, looking at studies and reading blogs and things like that. Um, and there's not a lot of information on it, which is really sad. So I'd love if you don't mind starting with your story and just kind of telling us your experience with this, I guess. Yeah. So back in 2012, I was pregnant for the first time. I was very young. I was 21. Um, I was still in school. And so I didn't have a lot of resources or confidence in my own medical knowledge. So I defaulted to physician and provider knowledge. And during that pregnancy, I experienced troubling symptoms of lower back pain that I reported to the provider multiple times. I called the nurse triage line about it because it bothered me so bad. And each time that I brought it up, I was always brushed off. And they had actually given me at my clinic a paper that listed symptoms of different things to watch out for in pregnancy. And on there, there was the incompetent cervix description, and it listed symptoms such as lower back pain that doesn't go away, uh, discharge spotting, things like that, that are also very similar to what you might see in a healthy pregnancy as well. So even though I was experiencing this lower back pain that just wouldn't go away, they never checked my cervix outside of the anatomy scan at 18 weeks. And during that scan, everything looked fine. I had a long closed cervix. Um, and then at 24 weeks, I was about to roll over into the 25 week zone. I woke up at around six o'clock in the morning and I was having some abdominal pain and it was like a tightening. And I was like, are these contractions? I must be going crazy because there's no way. I would be having contractions this early on. They keep telling me everything is good and healthy. And so I laid there for probably an hour just trying to get a grip on what was happening. And I was timing the tightening and I was like, okay, if these are contractions, they're close together and I need to call. So I called the nurse triage line and they didn't sound alarmed. They were just kind of like, okay, well you know, you're very early in your pregnancy, it's probably not contractions, but come in and get checked out. So I woke up my husband, my dad and my brother were actually visiting us there from out of state. 
And I felt really guilty, like worrying everyone and waking them up really early. And on the way there, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I, f- I feel so stupid. Maybe we should turn around. And I'm like, no, we're already going. So let's just go. We got there and I, you know, was able to walk in. I wasn't in any great amount of pain. The tightening was very small. And so there wasn't any great hurry, but they got me in situated in the bed and they started monitoring uh, my abdomen and they did pick up contractions and the nurse was very surprised. She was like, oh, okay, they're small, but they're there and they're happening regularly. And so the doctor came in and he told me he was going to check my cervix. So he did. And I could tell immediately by the look on his face that something was very, very wrong. And he kind of straightened up and said, you are dilated three to four centimeters, you're fully effaced, your waters are bulging. And then he started running through everything they were going to have to do. Um, I was at a smaller hospital outside of Charlotte and they told me the goal was to stabilize me and transfer me to a hospital in Charlotte with a level four NICU that can handle micropremies. And so they started running magnesium and drugs to stop the contractions. They started, uh, I think they gave me the first steroid shot for lung development at that point. And it's all kind of a blur for me. Um, But I was transferred by ambulance to the level four hospital. And I stayed on hospital bed rest there for five days. And I remember a maternal fetal medicine specialist came in and did an ultrasound on one of those days to see how things were going. And during that time, even though they were basically able to stop the contractions, I was still continuing to dilate painlessly. So throughout the week, you know, by Friday, I was at a nine. And I remember this one particular MFM when he checked my cervix via transvaginal ultrasound, he said to me, we can prevent this next time. And that really baffled me because I was like, I didn't verbalize these thoughts, but I was thinking, okay, number one, I'm not thinking about next time. I'm thinking about this fetus that I'm trying to keep inside my body. And secondly, um, what what is it what is it that you can prevent what is this he didn't name it or you know give me an official diagnosis i was just told that i had unexplained preterm labor so then on the 5th day of hospital bed rest my water broke and i delivered vaginally and thankfully my daughter came out crying she had had both steroid shots, so she was only ever on a bubble CPAP for about nine weeks in the NICU. She had a pretty uneventful stay as far as micropremies go, and she came home after 91 days. Oh, good. Uh, I'm yeah. so glad to hear that, that ending to the story. Yes, yes. I know uh, we were very lucky, and that is not the case for a lot of people. So very thankful. She's very healthy and vivacious. 
So then during my second pregnancy, they considered me high risk and monitored me much closer starting in my second trimester. I went for transvaginal ultrasounds bi-weekly for my cervical length to be measured. And it was at my 22-week appointment that they found my cervical length had shortened past what they like to see or what they consider safe. And they scheduled me for an emergent cerclage. But when they saw it was shortened, the MFM looked at me and he goes, oh, you have an incompetent cervix. And my face must have just fell because he was like, uh, but it's also called leak cervix. You know, it's a spectrum. I think he could tell I was offended by just having my cervix called incompetent. <laughs> so I was able to get a cerclage and carry to full term with my second pregnancy. And that was amazing. And I was just mesmerized that it was such a simple piece of technology that enabled me to carry full term. Right. <laughs> so um, after our, the culmination of those experiences and uh, after studying health communication in undergrad and grad school, I really wanted to research this topic and figure out, you know, why do they call it incompetent cervix? Where did this come from? What does it imply? And so I wrote my master's thesis on the topic. It's actually titled The Incompetent Cervix and the Good Mother. And it questions notions of what it means to be a good mother and how this diagnosis impacts the people that experience it. Yeah. And that's where Instagram was born. Yeah. And so your Instagram is early um, cervical opening and mm -hmm. that I never even thought to call it that. I know I talked on um, my Instagram about a client that I had who had a lot of high risk, um, a lot of high risk signs and just doctors did not take it seriously. And they, it was very similar to yours except for a different outcome to where she also never heard the word incompetent cervix. She just mm -hmm. heard you were having issues with your cervix. And it was, she still felt like she didn't have a reason for the loss because it doesn't name what's going on. And then incompetent cervix kind of puts the blame on the mom, right? Yes. Um, and so that's whenever I found your Instagram and I was like, that's brilliant. Early, com uh, early opening cervix is so much better. And I don't know why doctors back when they were naming these things didn't think about something like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sorry for your friend and her experience. And that seems to be a big pattern is just women presenting with symptoms and providers, you know, not taking them seriously. And after reading through so many uh, different medical journals and articles and the, what's available online to those that are searching for this term. It just seems to be the same story on repeat. You know, um, in medical literature, there 
often saying, this is understudied, we need to do more research. And then, okay, so where is the more research, you know? Right. Um, and I follow, I'm a member of a lot of different uh, incompetent cervix awareness groups, or sometimes it's called cervical insufficiency. And I read the women's stories in there and they're all very similar. And it's so disheartening because we have, I know it's a fairly rare diagnosis, one in 100 women, but when you read these stories so often, it's like, how are we not taking any action with this? Most of the time, doctors aren't screening for this unless a woman has already had one or two or more losses in the second trimester. Right. Well, I know with my pregnancies, so I've been pregnant three times. My first two were miscarriages and they were in the first trimester to where, you know, that wasn't really a concern, but I did have a lot of trauma that happened to my cervix. So with my rainbow pregnancy, I was thinking like, I'm going to have some sort of issue with my cervix because my body just can't go through any more, you know, pressure. So I pushed my doctor to check my cervix like every few weeks. And so they probably thought that I was a little crazy, but now, you know, knowing what I know, I'm really glad that I did that because they don't check it, even though they are right there on the ultrasound, (laughs) they just have to like look at it, you know, so they're already halfway there. Um, So I do push people to ask for them to check their cervix, especially after they've had even one loss you know, it doesn't matter if you've had one loss or five losses. you're still a little bit more at risk for those things. That's great. And it's so unfortunate that that's what we have to do to, you know, tell people you are going to have to push for this, but I'm glad that there are doctors who will listen. Um, For example, my sister, I was the first one of my uh, three siblings to have children. And I, when my sister got pregnant, after a long journey with IVF and miscarriage, I was like, you need to ask your doctor to have these ultrasounds done. And thankfully her doctor is great and agreed, but it was so interesting because my sister had some worrisome discharge in between. They were doing the ultrasounds bi-weekly. So I think it was the 21 week mark that she had the discharge and she was scheduled to have a transvaginal ultrasound at 22 weeks. And she had, she called and reported what was going on and they were like, oh, don't worry about it, that's normal. Even though we know watery discharge is a symptom of cervical shortening. And um, she was like, okay, all right, I'll wait until my appointment that's next week. So she showed up for her appointment and the doctor came out and told her, I don't think we need to see you today. You've been fine up until this point. Just, you know, go home. And she was like, no, I'm not going home. I'm here. I've had these symptoms. You're going to check. And so they did. And she was two centimeters dilated at 22 weeks gestation. So they sent her off to the hospital and thankfully they were able to do an emergent cerclage because they were a little unsure 
um, with the amount of effacement and dilation that she had if it was going to be successful, but thank God she was able to make it to full term. Yeah. Which she would not have if she had not pushed the way she did. And it's so crazy that it's around the same time that, yeah. you know, even though the first time you caught it around 24, 25 weeks, mm-hmm. you could have been dilating at 22 weeks to where you could have caught it at, yeah. you know, two centimeters. I wonder, have you, in any of your studies, have you seen a tie with genetics and with family members? And that's part of the uh, understudied part. They have not found a genetic component or link, but there's got to be something there because this isn't the only story that I've heard where sisters have had a similar complication around a similar gestation. My sister also was diagnosed with endometriosis. So that's a possible link. You know, um, it could be a lot of things, but unfortunately the research just isn't being done. Which sucks because, I mean, somebody somewhere has to be passionate enough about it to want to do the work. I, I just don't fully understand that. You know, there's tons of women in this community who would more than happy, you know, be a subject and be like ultrasound every week to see what the growth is. So, I mean, the subjects are there. It's just the the funding and the doctors interested in doing it really need to kind of step it up with that. Well, let's talk about your Instagram and um, kind of what you want to do with that. So, like, I know that um, in your bio you have – that it's like a call to action on words like that. And I actually saved one of your posts because it was one I wanted to bring up on our call um, on why um, early, early cervical opening. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I thought that that was really interesting. So you have the term early cervical opening was developed as an alternative to incompetent cervix, cervix insufficiency, the term ECO, aims to describe the diagnosis while removing blame and gendered language. Cervical, I can never say inefficiency without like, it's so bad. Cervical insufficiency and weak cervix are commonly used as alternatives to incompetent cervix, but these replacements are problematic as well. They both reflect larger socio-cultural assumptions that people are weak, that women are weak, insufficient, and incompetent. I recently heard the term dynamic cervix used, and while it successfully removes the blame from the individual, it does not adequately describe what is happening with the diagnosis as the services change through menstruation cycles, pregnancy, et cetera. Um, So I think that that's so interesting how you list every other word that's used and how they're still so problematic. And I know I've said incompetent cervix because that's what it's known as. And every time I said it, like I have a highlight up on my page, I cringe. Like I just hate saying the words out loud. It just, it sucks. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that you feel that way because yeah. not everybody does. Or I think it's um, for some people, it's just one of those taken for granted, you know, this is what it's called. I'm not going to question it, which I think is how it's been perpetuated in the medical community for so long, even though there are some physicians that try to, you know, use weak cervix or cervical insufficiency as alternatives. But as you 
pointed out, I don't believe that those are going far enough to remove the blame from the individuals with this diagnosis. When I was doing all this research for my thesis, um, I just kept finding examples of how doctors are framing women as failures and positioning themselves as heroes. Um, I also found, again, how this ties into a woman's sense of self and her identity as a mother. This diagnosis is just inherently filled with guilt. Right. Um, it's a guilt-laden diagnosis. Not only the woman feels her body has failed her, you know, we have this socially prescribed role that women are supposed to give birth and have babies and be good mothers and you know, oh, my body won't let me do that. What does that mean? What kind of mother am I? What kind of woman am I? And the medical language used doesn't help to change this. It um, Most of the time, the articles that I read basically talked about the woman in third person. They made her sound very passive. Uh, they delivered the woman's baby. The woman didn't do the delivering, things like that. Um, they, so that's an example also of how they silenced the patients. They never included any patient narrative. Um, I only found one article in all of my research and it was from I could look up the year and tell you it was from a while ago. It was not a recent article. And it was a provider saying, hey, maybe we should change this term. Maybe it's an extra slap in the face to the people experiencing this. And I was like, thank you. Why did that never catch on? You know? Yeah. Um, people don't want to do the work because it's already have a name. You know, people are already calling it something. It's a lot of work to undo it. And there's a lot of terms like that. I mean, even miscarriage, which, mm -hmm. you know, I have my, my doula thing is the miscarriage doula. And I started trying to focus on calling it first trimester birth, but people mm -hmm. can't find my support because nobody is calling it that. And so I learned that if I want people to find support for miscarriage, I have to refer to it as miscarriage, which really sucks. Um, but I'll often, when talking to somebody, I'll refer to the physical act of their miscarriage as birth when they birth their child. Um, so it sucks that we live in a world where words are normalized to where we're kind of forced to use them. So others know where to find mm -hmm. support and how to, it's just, it's insane to me. Yeah. And I love the work that you're doing. I think that's amazing. And I hope that that language catches on. I know I will adopt it. Um, As I will adopt yours, I've already like, I, I know I stutter through it, but like I'm trying to retrain my brain to say something different. But I think that that is so important. And like I, if, however, I can support you in that movement. You know, I totally want to, because even whenever I looked up Instagram accounts with the term incompetent cervix, I still had such a hard time finding resources. And mm -hmm. um, it's just like it happens, even though one in a hundred seems like, 
you know, it, it seems less likely than the one in four that have miscarriage, but that's still a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, even if it, it, I mean, it's still people that's impacted by this. Do you yeah. have favorite resources that you can share? Mm-hmm. And I'll link to them too with the, um, that's I, a can, really I can also just put them in the show notes if you want to send me all the links and stuff okay. outside of the call. I'm really happy to send you links. Yeah. I am. I think most of the stuff that you're going to find online, it pretty much all says the same thing. So I think maybe in the notes you can just add on, you know, that unfortunately people are really going to have to advocate for themselves if they experience these symptoms because there's no good standard of treatment for, um, Hey, if, a patient shows up to your clinic with these symptoms, what are you going to do? So I'm actually trying to encourage people to, when they're picking an OBGYN, have those conversations with them in the beginning. Hey, if I present to you with these symptoms, what are you going to do? I want to know that you're going to take me seriously and you're going to check me and not make me feel like I'm crazy. Right. Um, no, and that's so, a great point. I always tell people that because people are afraid that they're bothering their doctors and it's like, they're working for you. You're paying them, you know, rather your insurance is covering or not, you're paying the insurance company. Like they're working for you. You have to advocate for yourself and it really sucks that you have to do that. But in the long run, you'll be really thankful that you did. And yeah. that's not the first time that they'll have to advocate for themselves because it's going to continue whenever their baby is here and they'll have to advocate for their baby. So it's kind of like practice for the future. That's a really good way to frame it. So true. Um, Yeah. So I will send you links to things that I've found and then, Oh, and today I wanted to tell you I'm wearing my little shirt that I'm going to post on my Instagram later. Oh my gosh. That's so cute. Today is actually, March 4th is Early Cervical Opening Awareness Day, which, you know, most people still call IC Awareness Day. Yeah. So that's part of why I picked this date to do the interview. Yes, that is perfect. I love that. Are you going to be selling those shirts? Those are so cute. So it's actually partnered through someone else and she will make them. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'll Um, definitely share a link whenever that's live Um, because people can't see it, but it says ECO and it has a uterus, right? And I I wear anything with a uterus on it because we need to normalize that a little bit. (laughs) I have it displayed. I work in medical education and I have the logo like on my bulletin board and it's so funny watching People come in and look at it like, what is that? Why is there a uterus on your wall? <laughs> it's like, it's just an organ. It's totally fine. <laughs> yep. Well, and I'll have to, um, cause I do know quite a few of my clients that have had that diagnosis and mm-hmm. um, maybe I can get them together for a support group. If you will join yes. just to kind of talk with them and, and make them feel less alone. I would love to have you do that because you know, with your story, it's, I feel like people normally don't look into that unless things go wrong. And it's so powerful that you looked into it anyway, and that you're so passionate about changing the narrative and you had, you know, a a quote unquote, best case scenario. It still absolutely sucks to go through. Um, so it really shows your passion 
for changing that language and helping people through that, which is really special. Yeah, I would love to participate in that. I felt so alone for so long. So anything I can do to help people not feel that way. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you want to share about um, any tips, any advice, anything else that you've had on your mind on the topic? I think one of the things I didn't mention was just highlighting the fact that there is a really big racial disparity with the eco diagnosis. So um, we know black women uh, are more likely to deliver prematurely and they also have a higher risk of developing um, eco. It's about, I think a little over two times as likely to develop eco. So it's especially important for uh, women of color to know about this and to pick providers that are going to listen to them and if they present with symptoms, do the screening. Yeah. And the client that I told you about as a black woman who had a previous loss that was right at 13 weeks. So right on the cuff of the second trimester. Mm -hmm. And whenever I told her that, because I think that the study shows 2.4% higher Mm -hmm. than a white individual, like she had no idea. And it's, it's on the doctor to know those things because they're the specialist, right? And yeah. it's just really sad that it's not, she's not screened. I said, I said to her, I said, you know, whenever you put your race on your medical documents, it's not so they know your skin color walking through the door. It's that way they can take that into account for your medical health. And it's just, it's so, it's a whole other grieving process to know that something went wrong when it could have been caught. Yes. Yes, that so I've not- talked to multiple black women who have unfortunately experienced early cervical opening and um, they could have been caught. And that really, I mean, that's hard. It, like it's it, as an outsider to their story. I mean, I sat and cried with them over the grief that they must feel of no longer having the blame on them, but now blaming the doctor because the doctor should have known they have every right to be angry. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's part of why I am continue to be a member of those groups. I don't plan on having more children. So technically, I don't need to be a part of those groups anymore. But I want to read those women's stories. So I never forget what it was like to go through it myself. Um, like you said, in the best way that it could have happened. So yeah, that- helps keep the flame burning just knowing that all of this could be prevented yeah well i'm so appreciative that i found you on instagram and that you agreed to come on because whenever i saw your page i just was like i want to hear more about this and i want to talk to you and get to know you so i'm really glad that we had this time to talk um I'm definitely going to use you as a resource for this because you're, you're just a wealth of knowledge from your own experience and from all the studies that you've done. Um, where can people find you and is there anything to come with your page and what you're doing that they can look out for? Yeah. So my Instagram handle is at early cervical opening with the little underscores in between the words. I had to check myself on that cause I forgot that they were there. <laughs> 
Um, so actually, obviously, this podcast is really big. This is the first podcast I've been on. So thank you. I'm super excited. Yeah. Uh, also, um, two really wonderful researchers, Professor Johnson and Dr. Quinlan, they are writing a blog post about the Instagram page for a psychology blog. So we can look out for that. I think it'll be around April that will be published. Okay, perfect. Uh, That'll be just in time with the episode so I can link to it. (laughs) Okay. Um, I'm going to send them your page. I think you would love them. They were actually my, I did research assistant work for them in undergrad and Dr. Quinlan was on my thesis committee. They do wonderful research on um, motherhood and loss and we actually made a small documentary on um, fertility and women's journey through IVF so I'll send them your yeah, please do well and that's you know entering motherhood after my miscarriage and infertility journey I thought that like motherhood would cure all of those things and it heightened it in so many ways and it's just nobody prepared me for that and now I feel like it the feeling is so overwhelming that I don't know how to prepare other people for it because it just kind of all comes back like it's fresh and that's where even though my miscarriages were three years ago having my rainbow baby just kind of lit the fire under my butt to really help people because miscarriage never stops hurting and our fertility journey, our fertility trauma, like it all comes back. And so we need to talk about it more in general to normalize it. Absolutely. And I'm sorry that made reminded me of something else as well. No, you're totally fine. (laughs) I remember studying these topics in one of Dr. Quinlan's class classes and learning about, you know, for fertile versus infertile. And, you know, that's a whole nother um, topic in and of itself, but it's this continuum, right? And I was like, okay, so where do I fall on that spectrum? I can get pregnant very easily historically, and I can't keep those babies in without some intervention from medical technology. So what does that make me? Am I like fertile slash infertile, you know? And I just remember grappling with that as well and incorporating that (laughs) into my identity. Yeah. About having a baby, having a rainbow baby and that just thinking it's, you know, or hoping that it will erase all the pain. I, this is not the same. But when Lydia came home from the NICU, I thought, we're going to be so happy. Everything will be rainbows and sunshine. And it turned out I had really, really bad anxiety when she came home. Like, And I didn't even really realize how bad it was until reflecting back a couple years later. I was like, oh my gosh, I was not in a good place. Her coming home was actually really hard and traumatic. And I think I just kind of squashed those feelings down because it made me feel like a bad mom. Like she was home. I was supposed to only feel happiness. I wasn't allowed to feel other things. Right. 
And I don't know if you can relate to that at all, but it reminded me of your experience. Oh, for sure. And I hear that from so many people where they're literally sitting at home holding their baby and sobbing (laughs) over this huge feeling of feeling so sad and overwhelmed and like, what did I do? And then they're like, but I wanted this so bad and I went through so much to get it and I should only feel happiness. But it's honestly, it's a mess. But you know, there's no normal way to feel in motherhood. And I try to remind people that you can be happy and sad at the same time because it's a new life. Um, you also have, like in your experience, you have birth trauma that I'm sure you kind of squashed thinking like, that's just what birth is like. And you just kind of kept going thinking, I'll just forget about it. It's okay. The baby's, you know, fine. Um, but that trauma really sticks with us too, because when a baby is brought into the world in such a traumatic experience, it's kind of like, I don't know that it's just, it's crazy. And it's why people try to have like calming births and quiet. And I can totally see why, because the way that a baby comes into the world can kind of set up the next couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and, And with your experience, you know, having your daughter in the NICU, where she's constantly monitored and then bringing her home to where she's no longer constantly monitored unless you're standing over her. Like I would have been the same exact way. Yes. I was so obsessive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had the outlet on my son's foot for the first nine months. (laughs) So I I'm there with you. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's so wonderful. You know, social media has its issues, but I'm so grateful that I'm able to connect with people like you doing these wonderful things. I'm so excited to listen to all of your episodes. Yes, thank you. And I'll have to have you on more because I feel like we could cover the topics of what things are called and what are better words for them. So I'll definitely, I'd love to have you back. That would be fun.